You'll join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 this morning as we continue in our series through Paul's epistle to the Romans. We find ourselves in verses 9 through 18. And if you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, that begins on page 940. Our title of our sermon this morning is None is Righteous. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are righteous, good, and sin. In 1914, all along the Western Front during World War I, all that could be heard was the sound of rifles firing and shells exploding. It was a bloody and brutal battle of trench warfare in the middle of horrible, uncomfortable, often painful circumstances. It was winter, it was cold. The soldiers were often wet and suffering from frostbite and low food rations and very little sleep. The day-to-day results of the battle were devastating. However, starting on Christmas Eve of 1914, all of a sudden, the shooting stopped. And many German and British troops began to sing Christmas carols to each other across the lines. And at a certain point, the Allied soldiers even heard brass bands joining the Germans in their singing. And at first light, on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land and called out, Merry Christmas in the enemy's native tongue. Now at first, the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick, a trap. But seeing that the the Germans, unarmed, came to them, they climbed out of their trenches, they shook hands with the enemy soldiers. They exchanged presents with each other. Well, you're on the battlefield, there's not much to exchange, so they exchanged cigarettes and plum pudding, and they sang carols to one another and songs. Some of the Germans had lights they put in the trees around their trenches. There was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing sides playing a good-natured game of soccer with one another. One German lieutenant recalled how marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Some soldiers used this short-lived time of ceasefire for a more somber task, to go out into no man's land and to take with them the bodies of fellow combatants who had fallen during the war. And then, on December 26, 1914, the firing commenced and the war waged on. Now, this has been called the Christmas Truce of 1914, and it came only after five months of the outbreak of the war in Europe, and it was one of the last examples that we have of an outdated notion of chivalry between enemies in warfare. It's never been repeated as far as we know, in any conflict since then. Now, every time I think about this story, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by something that is, is held in common, that is so dear and meaningful to people across cultural lines, across ideological lines, across enemy lines, something so compelling and meaningful to them that it moves them to a place where even though such differences exist... 
they have no other option but to conclude that their similarities are far more important to them than their differences in that moment. Yes, of course, it all quickly went back. These guys that were singing together and smoking together and playing soccer together were once again shooting at one another in the days that followed. But on that day, in that moment, they realized something very important about the other men on the other side. We may look different, we may talk different, we may have different ideologies, but at our core, in our humanity, we are all very much the same. No doubt, if you, if you compare yourself to an Australian Aborigine or an Icelander or a Brahmin Indian or a Brazilian, you will find differences. No doubt. But if you sit down with a person and you compare your greatest concerns in life, your most significant hopes and dreams for yourself and for your family, if you talk about what you are most excited about, if you talk about the things that you love, what you hope for the future of your community and your nation, if you share what, with each other what your daily routines are and, and how you go about the things you do, what you will find is that while things may look very different on the outside, given our different contexts and circumstances, there really is amazing similarity across the board. In fact, when we stop focusing on our differences, what we realize very quickly is that human beings throughout all of time are far more similar than we are different. So it seems to me that much of what plagues us as human beings in our division would be remedied if we would just stop for a minute, set our weapons down, and think about what we hold in common. Now, that may seem like a pie-in-the-sky dream to all of us, a fairy tale or folklore. After all, the Christmas truce of 1914 happened once, and it didn't last, so how could we ever think it would happen on any level again? Well, I suppose our tendency is to consider all of our similarities in positive terms. Because we're comparing ourselves to others, we want to think the best. We're involved in this matter after all. But what if our real comparison with humanity, our real comparison with others all throughout history isn't what we find in our hopes and our dreams and our concerns, but what we find in our nature and our need for redemption? What would it be like if all of us looked at everyone around us and instead of immediately jumping to our conclusions about how different we are, we stopped and thought, you know, I have heartbreak in my life just like them. I have regrets in my life just like them. I have pain in the circumstances in my life, and I struggle with those circumstances every day just like them. I have broken relationships. I have shame. I have guilt. I have sin in my life just like them. And if this is true of me, and if this is true of them, we have the exact same need, no matter what it is that makes us different. Now, you'll recall that up to this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's indicated to the Gentiles, on, and, and he has pointed out their crimes against God and their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. 
He has prosecuted the, the Jews in their ethnic pride and partiality and their assumptions that they are righteous, that they have a right standing before God simply because they were ethnically Jewish. They were relying on external factors. They were fulfilling religious traditions with hearts that were far from God. And so Paul made known to the Gentiles that they have suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. They've worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. And then he made known to the Jews that they were relying on all of these things with unchanged hearts. And in all of it, Paul has driven us to see that we, like the Gentiles, have suppressed the truth. We followed after the idols of our hearts. He has shown us that we, like the Jews, have depended on external religiosity to satiate our cravings for acceptance before God while our hearts are often far off. We've been made to see that Gentiles, Jews, us, we, even though we all have differences, we, in the most fundamental way, in the most important way, are very much the same. You are, in the words of a popular book and now movie, the same kind of different as me. That's, what, that's where Paul has brought us. He has laid us low. That, that We just might stop thinking about how it is that we are better, that how we are more significant or more righteous or more deserving or more pleasing to God than all of our neighbors and start thinking, if any of this were up to me at all, there is no hope because I do not measure up. I am not and will never be worthy. So where do we go from here? Paul continues to guide our thinking this morning as he, he sort of begins to drive the summary nail into our self-righteous coffins and calls a ceasefire to show us that we're not what we want everyone to think that we are. We're not what we want to be. And we're not as different as those people out there as we would like to think we are. And so Paul begins to wrap up this part of what he has written thus far, beginning in verse 9. He writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so Paul brings this great summary of everything he has laid out from chapter 1 and verse 18 up to this point. It's been a tough road for all of us. If we've been honest with ourselves in our hearts about our sin, about our own self-righteousness, about 
what we think of ourselves in comparison to what God has shown us, but it has been good for us. I remember when I was in the army, I used to go into the gym, and we had a big sign over the entrance, and it says, pain is weakness leaving your body. Now, my lovely wife may not completely agree with that sentiment, but in theory, there's something there, and this is the sort of thing that Paul has brought us through. We have, we have endured some pain. We've endured the pain of having to consider ourselves and who we are in our sinful condition, but it's good for us. It's good for us because it is revealing to us how much greater we need the gospel than we ever thought we did. And so Paul has exposed us to the pain of having to be self-critical, of having to diagnose ourselves and our condition in order to bring us to a place where we can see our absolute need, and today where we can see our absolute similarity with all of humanity throughout all of humankind. And so the first thing we see in the text this morning in verses 9 and 10 is that all of mankind is totally depraved. Now, Paul has completely leveled the playing field. Remember, he pointed to the Jews, yes, you have tremendous advantages. Yes, those advantages matter, but you have squandered them. And instead of being thankful for what God has done, instead you were prideful, you were self-righteous, you were assuring yourself that you were better than the Gentiles You assume that you are okay because you are Jewish, but I am telling you that the Jews are no better off at this point. Whether you are Jew or Greek, you are under sin, and if you are under sin, you have no basis for boasting. Now, theologically and historically, what Paul is outlining here is, in, in short, is the doctrine of total depravity. Now, this is a very important doctrinal position. And one of the reasons Paul has spent so much time laboring this point since chapter 1 is because the main things that we need to understand about the doctrine of total depravity are outlined over and over again through these chapters to show us that we are so low (laughs) compared to what God requires that we have a great need for the gospel. Now, as we we said last week, we must have a firm grasp on the bad news if we're going to be able to truly understand just how good the good news is. It just so happens that Paul takes a while to lay out all the bad news. So what is the bad news? Well, he summarizes it right here. None is righteous, no, not one. When we discuss this doctrine of total depravity, it's important that we make some distinctions and be clear about what we are not saying. What we are not saying is that mankind is utterly depraved. Utterly depraved would mean that every man, woman, and child is as wicked as we could possibly be. But depending on how you look at it as good news or bad news, the truth is that we are not as evil in our thoughts and actions as we are capable of. Now, don't be too quick to think that what I'm saying is that you, you could be worse, but since you're not, you're fine. 
That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is something that we looked at way back in chapter 1, namely that we don't do all of the things that we are capable of doing in our depraved nature because God restrains us from doing those things by His common grace. In other words, while all of us have the capacity within our hearts to do far more evil than we do, the reason our desire does not give birth to action is because God is restraining us by His common grace. And by us, I mean all of mankind, not just the church. And that should give all of us pause. As much as we sin, we can always contemplate sinning more often and more grievously than we presently do. And the only reason we don't is because God is graciously restraining us and those around us. So often, as Christians, we'll see something happen, some kind of crime or some kind of evil action. And we'll say to ourselves, or even out loud, I don't know how a person could ever do that. I could never do something like that. Have you thought that before? But the, the Bible is pointing out to us that actually you can do that. And, and apart from God's grace, there's a very good possibility that you would do that. Now, I, I want to be careful here, though, because another thing that is important for us to understand is that the doctrine of total depravity does not suggest that as a result of our capacity for sin, that there is nothing of value in the human race at all. In other words, total depravity is not the position that because of our depravity, we have no value or worth as people. The truth is that the Christian faith in general, and Reformed theology in particular, holds humanity, the humanity of all people, all men, all women, all children, born and unborn, black, white, Asian, Latino, and everyone else, we hold all humanity in the highest, most exalted position than anyone ever, anywhere, has ever given to mankind. And the reason is because we take our cues from God. And we, so we take sin so seriously because we take humanity so seriously. We love humanity and we love the gifts of humanity and being created in God's image so much that we want to protect humanity from the devastating effects of sin instead of downplaying their significance. So, are you as bad as you think you are? No. You're far worse. <laughs> Does that mean you're worthless? Absolutely not. You are worth so much that it is worth understanding our total depravity so that we can look to God to escape the clutches of sin and death that so easily ensnare us. So total depravity means simply this, that sin affects every aspect of our human existence, our minds, our wills, our bodies, our emotions, they are all affected by sin. Every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected humanity. This is what the Apostle is expounding here in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Of course, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles, 
We're within that. That's all of humanity. Are Jews better than Gentiles? No, not at all. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better than the Jews? Not at all. In chapter 1, Paul gave his attention primarily to the Gentiles, the pagans outside of the camp of Israel. Chapter 2, he turned to the sinfulness that is present within the community of Israel. And so the conclusion follows inevitably. We have made this charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now, notice an important and interesting piece of what Paul is expounding here. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't write that both Jews and Gentiles are, are sinners. Of course, that is true. This is what he's been laboring to show us thus far. But notice that he writes here that Jews and Gentiles, or Greeks, are all under sin. What does that mean? Well, this is illustrated, of course, by, by John Bunyan, his main character, Christian, in The Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, as, as Christian set off on his journey from the city of destruction, he leaves with a heavy weight on his back, a heavy pack, like a, a backpack or a rucksack, and, and it's heavy and it's burdensome. And as you read, you get the sense that he's sort of walking with a bend in his waist to bear the load, to bear the weight on his back. And it, it's making his journey more difficult, more tiring, more laborious, often dreadful. And, and this is Bunyan's representation. He's, he's giving us this word picture to show us what it is like to be under sin. When a person is under sin, they are weighed down under the pressure, under the burden. And yet, so often, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, they don't even realize it. We don't even know that that weight is on our back. And so in the same way, Paul is writing that no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter where you're from, no matter what you have or don't have, no matter where you were born, no matter who your parents are, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your job is, no matter where you go to church, no matter how much you know, everyone everywhere, either Jew or Gentile, is under the awful weight and burden of sin, and as such, none of us, no, not one of us, no one is righteous, not even one. You and I are totally depraved. That is not a pleasant reality. That is not a fun pill to swallow. That's not something we like to go on with our pals about on a Friday night at the pub, but we all know it's true, don't we? Just this week, I had a conversation with a lady, and she said to me, I have never really understood Christianity. I just think about myself and how I'm a good person, and I think about the people in this world that are good people, and yet I see suffering, and I see evil things people do, I see all kinds of terrible things, and I just can't bring myself to think that there's actually a God overseeing all of this, and that all of these good people are suffering evil and injustice. And so I told her, you know what? I understand that. I've seen a lot of things in my life. 
I've been in multiple wars. I've traveled to almost 30 countries and have seen some of the poorest people in the world suffering under some of the most difficult circumstances. I've seen the effects of corruption and poverty and famine and genocide and warfare, and none of it is pretty, and all of it cries out that this world is full of injustice, and all of it makes us all wonder why. But when I wake up in the morning after seeing all those things, I need something far more compelling to keep me going than to think that none of it matters. That we're called and put on this earth for something greater. Something far more compelling than to think that stuff just happens and it looks evil, but I have no way of really calling it evil because I don't have any kind of objective truth to which I can anchor my claims to. I need something far more compelling than my own senses to deal with the reality of this difficult, broken, messed up life on this earth that hits us in every direction, and sometimes it hits us really, really hard, and I need to be able to do that honestly, and and not by beginning at the place where you begin to think that you are a good person and so you don't deserve anything to happen to you. I'm not a good person. You're not a good person. And I want you to think about yourself and who you are and what you've done and what you've thought and what you've wanted to do and what your flesh desires. And I want you to be honest with yourself and realize that you don't even live up to your own personal standard, let alone the standard of God. And that's the starting point. The starting point is not that you're a good person or that there are good people in this world and bad things are happening to them, but the starting point is that you're not good. And you know what? Despite that reality, even though that's true of all of us, God so loved the world that despite your badness and my badness, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you don't think I struggle every day with the question of evil in this world, then you're very mistaken. But I don't struggle to wonder why it happens. I know why it happens because I know my own depraved heart. I struggle with why it is that God is so kind to keep us from experiencing more. I struggle with why it is that God sees fit to continue to tarry with us and not destroy everything in an instant. I struggle with why it is that God sees fit to continue to show us His grace day by day by day. I struggle with why it is that I'm not the recipient of more of the fallenness of this world instead of the very little that I have to endure on a daily basis. I struggle with why it is that God allows me to wake up every morning even though I know all the things that I thought and said and did yesterday. I struggle with why it is that when I look in the mirror and reflect on who I am and what I am, knowing what I have done and doing and will do in this life to dishonor God and serve myself instead, that God would ever love a sinner like me. That is astonishing. And it becomes all the more astonishing when we see what Paul continues to write in verses 11 and 12, that our depravity ruins our relationship with God. Notice he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul's established that our nature is depraved, and then he shows us that as a result of this depravity, and we must be very clear in ourselves and our understanding of ourselves and God's Word, that all sin, all sin is not mainly a thing that we do to other people. Sin is first and foremost and most devastatingly a rebellion against God. So when a friend tells you that they're pretty good as a person and they don't understand all of the evil that takes place in the world, what they mean is that in their minds, they treat other people pretty decently. They don't steal, they don't kill, they don't lie all that much. They give money to charities, they feed the poor when they have food. But that's missing the mark entirely, isn't it? The main question, the first great commandment, do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is there evil and suffering in this world? Because nobody is good, and in our natural state, in our depraved nature, we do not love God. We hate Him. Paul tells us we do not understand which is the very reason why we would ever claim to be good in the first place. He he tells us no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. You know, it was all the rage, especially in the 1990s, for churches to say that they were seeker-sensitive. They would go into their neighborhoods, they would go into their communities, they would determine what kinds of things the people liked about music and about their hobbies and movies and styles of clothing and buildings and on and on and on. And then they would form their church around the ideas that they gathered from their community and they thought that if they build it that way that the people in the community would come because they'd be attracted to it and they would show up and God would work in their lives and they called it all seeker-sensitive. So they did that for a while, and then 20 years later, one of the main proponents of the seeker-sensitive movement came out publicly and said it was a huge mistake. It should have never been done, and the results are in, and they aren't pretty. People came, they were never changed, and then they left. We focus too much on what they wanted instead of what God wants. And that's exactly right, because what does the text tell us right here? No one seeks for God. Okay, pastor, we hear you. But you can't say that because there's all kinds of religions in this world. Are you saying those people aren't seeking God? Well, Paul is quoting the Psalms here. And by the way, the whole section you see is a quotation marks because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament all throughout. And the point is that from the perspective of God... There is no one who in themselves is seeking after Him. But doesn't the Bible say, I know you're all thinking this, you know your Bibles backwards and forwards, doesn't the Bible say that any man who seeks me shall find me if he seeks me with all of his heart? Didn't Jesus say those who seek will find? Doesn't Hebrews 11 tell us that God rewards those who seek Him diligently? Isn't all of this a contradiction to those texts? Good question. Important questions. I am glad you asked. Consider this. 
If someone is engaged in a false religion, what are they seeking? They think they're seeking after God, but they're actually seeking after something other than God, right? If we believe there is one true and living God, they're not seeking God. They've actually run from God. And it's important to think of this in the context of chapter 1, Paul telling us, first and foremost, the reality about all of mankind apart from our depravity is the fact that God Himself has revealed Himself to all of mankind everywhere through nature, through general revelation, God has made Himself known. And now, man has suppressed that truth and has instead created their own truth and run after it. And so, man is running from God to his own man-made system or some other man-made system, and in so doing is worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. So, they're they're not seeking God. They're seeking something else. They're seeking, most often, relief in their minds, in their conscience, from the burden of that sin. And so those people, those, those passages, uh, the people that those passages are talking about, those people who are truly seeking God are not seeking God on their own initiative. Because on our own initiative, we seek other gods. We seek our own self-fulfillment. We are blinded to the truth. So if someone is truly seeking God, it is because God has taken the initiative. We'll think about this more in the chapters ahead, but but think of Jesus' words in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And then on what basis does Jesus say this happens? No man, same language, universal, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. You see, that seeking, that drawing, that is done by the Father to the Son, and it is a work of God. And that is the seeking that the Bible is talking about when it is done by man. But what Paul is saying here is that no man anywhere has ever done this on his own because of our fallen nature. No man seeks God on his own terms. On our own, Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Everyone seeks their own instead of what is Jesus Christ's. In fact, Paul goes on, you not only don't seek for God in your depravity, he says, all have turned aside. We don't only not seek Him, we go the other way. The phrase Paul uses here was used in the writings of uh, Polybius, and and he he was using the term to describe a group of soldiers who turned away and fled in the confusion of battle. That's what Paul is saying we're doing here. We're deserting our post. That's a good way for us to think about it. Turning away, a deserting of the way that God has created us to pursue. We have all turned, we have all gone our own way, we have all gone astray. And so what happens? He writes, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This goes right back to my friend that I talked to this week, the good person. If you think your good deeds are good, if you think your unselfish deeds are good, what is 
What is Paul telling us? They're not good. If you think they're good as a result, and if you think they're good and as a result God owes you something, like less difficulty in your life, less evil that you have to encounter, if you think God owes you something because of what you have done, your deeds are not good because your selfishness is actually what's going on instead of selflessness. You have to first recognize the worthlessness of your deeds to save you before your deeds could ever be worthwhile and pleasing to God. Because in our depraved nature, we have denied God's lordship over us. We have exalted ourselves. We have exalted our desires. We have put ourselves over God's purposes. And when we live in our depravity, we are keeping God at an arm's length and ruining the most important relationship that we could ever have in this world. And when our relationship with God is ruined, we can be certain of the reality of what Paul shows us finally this morning in verses 13 through 18. Our depravity ruins our relationships with one another. Look again in verse 13. He writes, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's first emphasis is on human speech and he paints a nasty picture. It is the hateful, lying, deceitful words of man that proceed from the open throat to the tongue to the lips, all of this from the mouth. And look what Paul compares it to. He he drives us to imagine exhuming a body from the ground. And, And you imagine that a casket with this body is being lifted from the grave and the lid to that casket is being lifted up after it's been in the ground for months or years. The odor, the stench, the rot, the decay, the death, this is all the picture that Paul paints for us of what flows out of the mouth of one who lives in their depravity. You know, so often Christians seem to be shocked by the things that they hear non-believers say, and and we act offended. And, And it's not pleasing to the ears to hear what we sometimes hear as Christians, for sure. We're not we're not talking about a person though who, as Paul says, understands what they're doing or why they're doing it. There's They're saying what their heart communicates, and they don't see any problem with that, and sometimes it's as bad as the bite of a venomous snake. But listen, we shouldn't be surprised. Of course they're going to blatantly lie to you. Of course they're going to be deceitful. Of course they're going to be hateful and vile. Because you too were all of those things before Christ saved you. And you, in your own sinfulness, sometimes have the desire to do those very things and sometimes do those very things. But this person who doesn't know Christ at all, their relationship with God is ruined and so their relationship with others is ruined as well. And we all know that from our own lives, don't we? 
especially in your adult life by, by keeping God as an ar- at arm's length. If you, if you grew up without Christ and you came to Christ later in life, you definitely know about this. You know that your human relationships all seem to be troubled, all seem so often to be broken and painful. I talk to non-believers quite often who talk about their relationships with others and they just don't seem to work out. Everywhere they turn, there are problems. Betrayal, lying, cheating, violence. And the theme is always the same. The theme is always an attempt to manage all of the details on our own. But rarely do I ever hear someone tell me that while their last four or five relationships have turned out to leave them with a broken heart and a confused head and a troubled soul, that they've realized there's a common factor in all of these relationships. Themselves. But look at what Paul says in verses 15 through 17. It's a metaphor for the depraved person's approach to life. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. Broken relationships so often result in violence, and as a result... The way they go, the path they follow, is marked by ruin and misery. They do not know peace. Friend, is that your story? Are you in a place right now where it seems like the path you follow is one of ruin and misery? The decisions you make always end up turning to something you never thought they would, and it makes things even more miserable. Do you struggle to know peace in your life? Do you want to know why? Paul tells us right there in verse 18, there is no fear of God in your eyes. Now listen, you might say that's not true. I fear God. But you do what Paul says elsewhere. You pay lip service to the truth of God, but it is far from you. A life consumed by God is not a life that is marked by ruin and misery and enmity with everyone else around you. A life consumed by God. It's not easy. It's not trial-free. It is not the road to perfect relationships. But our relationships are not marked by ruin and misery. Our relationships are not marked by constant struggle. Our relationships are not marked by violence. Our relationships are marked by patience and grace and forgiveness and love for one another. And Paul once again leaves us in a low place here, doesn't he? All of us can see ourselves in this text if we're honest, but Paul is driving us from what he showed us in chapter 1 and what he's going to show us in a few verses here in chapter 3. And friend, if your relationship with God is ruined then your relationship with others is ruined. And you are being made to see by God this morning that your life is not marked by godliness, but by your depravity. But I don't want to leave you here thinking that that's the end of the story. Let me tell you about us, because remember what I said at the beginning? This isn't the story about you or about me. It's the story of us, because we're all the same kind of different. You and I were created in the image of God. And that image was broken and fractured in the rebellion of our first father, Adam. 
And so the story of humanity since the beginning of time has been a story of brokenness. Broken relationships, broken promises, broken lives. But God is at work to restore that which has been broken. And He's done so through the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of our brokenness, God had a plan from the beginning of time since the foundations of the earth that we we think of time beginning in ourselves. And God had a plan before it all took place that at the right time, in the right place, that He would send His only Son into this world to fulfill the law that you and I could not fulfill. But that's God's standard. Perfection. God doesn't grade on a, a scale that says, as long as you do most of it okay, if you get a 99%, everything's great. God demands perfection, and because we're fallen, there is no perfection. And so He sent Jesus into the world to live perfectly, to fulfill the law perfectly, because we could not. Jesus was sent into this world to die the death that we deserve because we cannot fulfill that law. To die in our place because what we deserve as a result of our sin is death. He sent Jesus in this world to be buried that three days later He would be raised up again to defeat, to conquer sin and death forever and ever. And so friend, It is true what the Scriptures say. No one is righteous, not you, not me, no one. But, but, Jesus Christ is righteous. And it is in His righteousness that we can stand before God and be declared not guilty, even though we are. How? By God's grace, through faith alone. What do you put your faith in? Is your faith in you being a good person? Is your faith in the things that you have done or that you plan on doing? Your good deeds will never be enough. The Scriptures invite you. The Scriptures demand of you. God commands you to place your faith in Him alone. But this isn't a an overbearing authoritarian God who says, do this and do this in a way that is displeasing or lacking in joy or fulfillment. No, Jesus warmly, lovingly, sweetly invites you to come to Him, to place your hope in Him and to know that your only way of moving beyond this life into the next and knowing the true joys of heaven are to rest in His righteousness alone because you have none to offer. Will you come to Christ? He invites you to do so and He will not turn you away. Now, brothers and sisters, sometimes as Christians it's hard to admit that we still have the work of sin in our lives because we want so desperately for that to not be the case, right? We pray and we wish and we hope, and we're so disappointed that week after week after week, we sit here on Sunday mornings and we cry out to God, repenting of the very same things we repented of last week. 
and we feel so helpless, we feel so hopeless, until we remember what God has done for us. Until we remember that it is on Christ's work, it is on Christ's righteousness, it is on Christ's goodness, it is on Christ's law-keeping that we find all of our hope and all of our help and not our own. Are you depraved? Yes, you are. And don't ever let anyone try to convince you otherwise. It is your nature as a human being on this earth. Are you utterly depraved? No. And thank God, because you could actually be far worse. But the most important question, are you forgiven? Are you being made whole? Are the broken pieces being put back together? By God's grace, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain but He has washed it white as snow. Amen.